I don't know whose idea it was that this would be a good thing to build a fence out of in the Grand Forks. It's maybe three-eighths of an inch thick. And it sits in the sun all day. I got about 600 feet of fence that's made out of this. It makes really good fire starter. Uh, you know, I, I get my kids, as these fence panels are just falling apart because they're only held in with these little staples, I, I, you know, we, as these fence panels are coming down, um, I just get them to chop them into 16-inch chunks, and then I can split them up for kindling all winter long, and they work really well because they're, you get a can of paint 10 feet in, away from my fence, it'll suck it straight out of the can and into the wood, and you won't even know it was there. That's how dry this wood is. 600 feet of fence, and you know, it's really starting to deteriorate. And uh, over the last number of years, myself and the about five neighbors that share this fence line, we've been, we've been, you know, patching it, screwing it back together, adding an extra, you know, one by four to try to keep all the fence little slats in place. Uh, stuff's falling apart, but sooner or later, probably sooner, we're going to have to make a plan, commit the money, and replace it and fix our fence. But hopefully not this year because the wood prices are stupid right now. Anyway, it'd be one of those renovation projects that will never go as planned anyway, right? You know, how many renovation plans go according to your plan? Any? Not often. They often cost more than you usually thought they would and even when we, get, we start getting into a project, we discover, oh, there's this other thing we need to do. And then that challenges us uh, to change our plan. There's things that come up that we don't anticipate. And we need to then invest more time and money and energy into getting that project to completion. And sometimes along the way, we just run out of resources. And sometimes we just give up. Well, 586 BC, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonian army. The defensive walls of Jerusalem were breached and broken. The gates of the city burned to ash. The temple of God absolutely destroyed. And many people, especially the leadership of Israel, was carried off into exile in Babylon. And for the next 70 years, the city lay in ruins. And then in 538 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, issued a decree that people who had been displaced by the Babylonian Empire could return to their homelands, rebuild their places of worship, and slowly people returned to their place of origin. Sheshbazzar, prince of Judah, led the first group back to Jerusalem with the intention of rebuilding the temple in 537. And within a year, the foundations of the temple were, were cleared and it was ready to start being rebuilt. The altar was restored and worship started happening again. But a year later, opposition arose and the rebuilding project stopped. And for the next 15 years, nothing was done. The temple of God still lay in ruins until God raised up Haggai and Zechariah in 520 B.C. You can read this in Ezra uh, chapter 1 and and following. So 520, Haggai and, and Zechariah show up and they call the people of Israel to get back onto the building project. But as Haggai notes, even after it's done, it's nothing compared to the splendor of the temple 
prior to its destruction. It was functional, but it was a shadow of what was. And that one project was completed, but there were other projects that were left. The, the city was still a heap of ruins. Defensive walls were complete rubble. The city had no gates. And in the ancient world, this left you to a, open to attack and to raids, and it was a sign of shame. It was saying your city was an embarrassment to the neighborhood, and it also showed that your God was powerless to help. That's what all of this communicated in the ancient mindset. But just like renovations where the job is kind of, sort of started and not really finished, you know, just like those things maybe around your house that you started, but then you just kind of stopped maybe four or five years ago, you just learn to live with it. You, it, it eventually becomes invisible to your own eyes. I, I heard a story recently of somebody who had to get their uh, driver's license picture redone. And she went in, got the driver's license picture done, and, and then it came in the mail. And it was like, oh, wait a minute, I was still wearing my mask. But the person taking the picture didn't notice it, she didn't notice it, and apparently the driver's license board didn't notice it either. We get so used to seeing things a certain way that they become completely invisible to us. This happens in a number of situations. This happened to the people of Israel after coming back from Babylonian exile. For the next 80 years, Jerusalem would be just rubble and chaos and broken down walls and shame. Sure, the temple was rebuilt sort of and the altar was repaired and worship was happening again, but the city still bore all the marks of defeat, a defeated people and by extension a defeated God. It wasn't until 94 years after Cyrus issued his decree in Ezra chapter 1 that someone finally comes along with the vision, the drive, and the resources to do something about it. 94 years. Now, now sometimes we read the Bible, you know, you can blow through Ezra kind of quickly. It's, what, 10, 11, 12 chapters, and then you get into Nehemiah, and you think it all happened in the same week. And we, we don't really get the time distances. 94 years between the decree of Cyrus and Ezra uh, and Nehemiah showing up. So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read Nehemiah 1 uh, all the way to chapter 2 and verse 8. And we're actually going to be diving into the, these, this, these two chapters in a lot more detail over the next couple of weeks. There's a lot here, but this gives us a, just a good introduction to the whole thing. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the twelfth year that I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, 
Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but a sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors in the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. So the year is 444 B.C., and a lot has happened. A lot has happened. The events recounted in Esther, though in our Bibles it follows Nehemiah, are actually 40 to 60 years in the past. Ezra the priest has led a group of Israelites back to Judah 14 years prior to, with, with the intention of rebuilding the temple, but they're still struggling along with that. You would think things were getting back on track. You had a priest there. You had a you had a, a the, the the political leader Sheshbazar, king, a prince of Jerusalem there, but things aren't getting back on track. Nehemiah was likely born in exile, and he's serving in the court of Artaxerxes the first, who reigned from 465 to 424 after the reign of Xerxes, and that whole story with Xerxes is is in uh, Esther. Esther's story is part of that. So prior, this, this is the next king. The palace is Susa, and the Hebrew word is Shushan, which is in uh, modern southern Iran, just north of Kuwait. And actually, the, the current city of Shush is built on the same location. Nehemiah, whose name means Yahweh has comforted, comes 
He hears from a delegation coming from Judah that one of his brothers brings him this report that things in Jerusalem aren't going well. The people are living in great trouble and shame. And this moves Nehemiah to lament and to prayer and then to action. Over the next eight weeks, as as we look at the memoirs of Nehemiah, these are the sections of the book. Um, Incidentally, Ezra and Nehemiah is actually one book. It was only separated into two books after a guy named Origen, about 300 in the 3rd century AD, decided they should be two books, and it kind of got passed down from there. But uh, in the Hebrew canon, it's just one book, one story, probably written, uh, compiled by the same person that did Chronicles. But we're looking at the, what are called the, the memoirs of Nehemiah in chapters 1 to 7 and then verse uh, chapter 13. These are all told from Nehemiah's perspective in the first person. Uh, chapters 8 to 12 of the Nehemiah uh, actually refer to Nehemiah in the third person. And in some of those events, he's not even present. He's back in Susa. He had returned to his duties to Artaxerxes. So what we're looking at is kind of the memoirs of Nehemiah in these chapters We're looking at Nehemiah because his appearance in Scripture is actually quite brief. It's focused and it's uniquely significant. Nehemiah is not a prophet. He is not a priest. He is not a king. He's a cupbearer, a trusted butler. He he receives no direct revelation from God. He performs no miraculous sign or wonder. He's a regular guy who actually just ends up being a project manager on a short-term assignment. 52 days it takes from the time he starts the project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem until it's finished. And then he hands the leadership and the spiritual direction of the people back over to those who are qualified and equipped for those tasks. In short, Nehemiah is just a regular guy who sees a specific need, meets it, and then retreats to the background. Nehemiah is a man who sees a problem, finds a solution, and sees beyond the problems and the challenges that will arise in the midst of trying to get a job done and sees a way through. Nehemiah is a man of vision who can execute a plan to completion, and this is what we're going to focus on for the next eight weeks, the necessity of vision, being able to see how our lives fit into the bigger picture of what God is up to in our world at this time, what he's calling us as his people to be and do in the midst of this all, seeing what needs to happen next as we participate in God's vision. You know, when we look at the whole situation that was happening in Jerusalem before Nehemiah got there, their biggest problem wasn't that the city of Jerusalem was in ruins, it was that they couldn't see that it was in ruins. The project really wasn't about the wall as much as it was about the heart condition of the people. You know, perhaps the people of Israel were just tired of trying and meeting resistance. I mean, you read through Ezra and it's resistance, 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 and it's political pressure and it's social pressure. And it's, it's, it's after 94 years of broken down walls, all of that would be invisible to people again. And they were probably just tired of it. You know, when we think the average lifespan of people during this this era was much shorter than it is today, most if not all the people had never known Jerusalem to be any different. The walls had always been in ruins. The gates had never really been anything other than charred pieces of lumber. It was all they knew. 
You know, live in a house long enough, right, and you don't see the wear and tear. You don't notice the finish on the stairs wearing thin, the scuff marks in the walls. I just, just ask um, uh, my mom and a- Auntie Elner and, and uh, Liz Clausen and Judy Clausen, who have been, you know, uh, the people that cleaned off all the baseboards around the, the hallways of the church and, and washed all those walls over the last month or so. And, and they'll tell you that there was a lot of buildup and grime and stuff on those surfaces that it's been 25 years. And how many of us would have noticed it? Not many, right? I, I, uh, first church I worked at in, in Vancouver, the, the, the pastor at the time was trying to encourage uh, the, the leadership of the church that they needed to do some repair work around the church. And they're like, why? Everything's fine. So he went around with a camera and he did close-ups. They had like a, a nice wooden door uh, on, on the front, but the, the, the water had wicked up and it was like peeling in several layers and, and there were like dings and scuff marks and broken drywall, and, and, but they didn't see it. Because they've been living with it for so long. And that, that, that happens to us. That happens in our lives. That happens in our own homes. I'm sure it was happening to the people of Jerusalem. They couldn't see it because it, it was all they ever knew. They got comfortable living in a, a city that was broken down. You know, sometimes we don't see reality clearly, and it takes an outside set of eyes to help us see what's really going on. Nehemiah hears the plight of the people of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and he sees it for what it really is, and it breaks his heart. Just, just, just look at verse 4. This would be the verse to really kind of just sit on and meditate on for this next week. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. For days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, this is thousands of miles away. This is somebody else's city. Somebody else's problem, right? It's not us. It's, you know, it's, it's the lower mainland's problem. It's not ours. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And Nehemiah could have just said, wow, that really sucks for them. But he didn't. You know, here's a guy that was probably born, had never been to Jerusalem in his life. But he knows. He knows from Scripture. He knows from the story of Moses that this was a city set apart for God, the living God, the creator God. And he goes, this is not right. Vision starts with a broken heart. When we see a situation for what it really is and we feel the depth of it. Andy Stanley in his book Visioneering says, vision is always accompanied by strong emotion and the clearer the vision, the stronger the emotion. So what moves you to prayer and to tears and to fasting? What what keeps you up at night? What drives you to your knees? 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. What is it that you envision changing in your life, the life of your family or the church, the community or the world? What fills you with with a deep sense of grief and, and, and yet pushes you towards hope and expectation that things can and should change? See, see, vision is born of a broken heart as to what is, but it, it fuels our hope for what can be. And Nehemiah enters a season of prayer. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And if we put the, the we, we unpack the, the two time dates here at the beginning of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, we come to this, four months. Four months of prayer and fasting and seeking God before Nehemiah did anything. The first thing he does is he enters a season of prayer. But in that time, he formulates a plan as well. His broken heart motivates him to dream, but he doesn't just dream about what could be. He begins to design a solution. His heart is moved, his mind is engaged, and he is calling on God to intervene, and he is working out the details to make it happen. He doesn't just rant on Facebook or throw off a tweet. He sits down and creates a plan that's going to involve him personally in the solution. And we're going to dive into this deeply in the next couple of weeks. Next week, Pastor Ben's going to talk about the necessity of prayer at the beginning of the whole visioning process. And the following week, we'll look at the plan Nehemiah came up with. Prayer and planning happening together at the same time over this four-month period of time. In this story, Nehemiah's personality, his skills, his giftings have all prepared him to step into leadership at this point of Israel's story for the purposes of God and the benefit of his people. Now remember, Nehemiah is born and bred in captivity. He is serving a pagan foreign king. And he is perfectly positioned for God's purposes. Don't, don't miss Nehemiah's situation. He is, he is a slave. <laughs> he is an exile. He is serving a pagan man in a foreign land. But he is right in the middle of God's purposes. So no matter where you're at in life, No matter the past or present dysfunction or pain or challenges or trials, God is at work in you and for his purposes and his kingdom purposes are going to relate directly to the journey that you have been on. One of my seminary professors once told me, I went went to him because I was saying, you know, I'm in this program because I I, I felt called into like a very academic approach to, you you know, uh, hopefully going on to do a PhD and then, you know, teaching in a Bible college uh, kind of situation. But I'm really feeling that God's pulling me into church ministry. So I I think I should just get out of this program and and transfer into an MDiv program because, you know, all I'm doing is like academic Bible study stuff. And he looked at me and he said, well, what do you got left to do? I said, well, I just got my thesis left to do and then and then I'm done. He's like, you know what? Just finish the thesis. And remember, God never wastes experience. You know, the years of seminary, this is the one thing that really stood out to me. The one thing that I took away from the whole thing is that God never wastes experience 
whatever is going on in, in your life, whatever has gone on in your life, your, your past, your present, the, the challenges you're facing, equip you for his work right now. God never wastes experience, no matter how crazy it may seem. You know, one of the verses we, we uh, often memorize, love to quote, but we often kind of disengage it a little bit from the context is Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that just empowering? You know, God is working in me and, and he's prepared stuff for me to do so I can go out and do it. But look back to, to a few verses and, and see where you had to come from to get to that point. Chapter 2, verse 3 of Ephesians. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Uh, verse 5. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive in Christ. The reality is that every single person, every single messy life is redeemable and restorable and in God's power and timing, remarkable. See, see, know know this. God sees the broken down walls, the burned out gates of your life and my life, and that breaks his heart. His knowledge of your pain and sin and struggle have moved him to action. Jesus left his privileged position at the side of the Father, took on flesh to live among us, experience life as one of us, enter our broken and burned out cities, and to bring restoration and healing and salvation and redemption and to create something beautiful. God always works in us to bring us life, to restore our brokenness, to redeem our failures, and to revive us from a life of death. He does this to display his glory and involve us in his ongoing redemptive processes. We move from being dead in transgressions and sins to being alive in Christ. His workmanship, his poem, his work of art, to live as an expression of his creative will and mind in a world that needs to see and experience his beauty. Andy Stanley says about this verse in in Ephesians, don't let this slip by. You are his workmanship. Say it out loud. I am God's workmanship. I am God's workmanship. Do you know what that means? It means that you are a product of God's vision. God decided what you could be and should be. You are the outcome of something God envisioned. And through Christ, he has brought about and continues to bring about changes in you in accordance with his picture of what you could be and should be. God is at work in your life with all your flaws and your challenges and your issues and your pains. And he's doing something in you so that he can do something through you. Nehemiah. He's, he's, he's living in exile in, in a pagan foreign land serving a king thousands and thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. But God has prepared him specifically to serve his purposes. 
Look at that last part of Ephesians 2.10 again. You are being created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The question is, what are you living for right now? What gives your life focus and meaning and direction? What moves you to tears? What invokes your passion and drives your decisions? You know, in, in Christ, as you've come to Christ, God begins a work in your life and, and he has a vision for your life. He has a vision for our church and for our community. We are his workmanship. We, plural. What has he prepared us to walk in? See, I, I believe God has a vision for us. But it begins with seeing and knowing the reality of how broken and burned out our world is, our community is, and being broken by it. Moving us to prayer, birthing us in, uh, in us a plan, awakening a conviction of what God wants to do through us to bless the world around us. And it always starts in our hearts. Not as anger. Not as being defensive, but as being broken. The clarity of what we could do, what we should do, fueled by the passion that we must do it because God has prepared us and placed us and provided for us to walk in his purposes for our generation begins to take shape when we lament the reality of what is. Deeply sense that we need to enter a season of prayer for God's intervention and then plan for our participation in his purposes to walk in obedience to what he reveals. Nehemiah heard about the reality of Jerusalem and the people living there and it just drove him to prayer and broke his heart and birthed the plan and propelled his life. So what breaks your heart? What drives you to prayer? What keeps you up at night thinking of solutions? What is propelling your life right now? On the back of your, your uh, bulletin, and if you're, if you're at home on the, on the YouVersion app, I've got some questions that I think we, we all need to engage in over this week as we wrestle with this, as we apply this passage in this. Take some time this week to work through these questions in one or two sentences. Describe what you believe your life ought to be, your preferred future in regard to your career or your retirement or your education. What's God calling you to be in that? What would it look like if, if it was just the amazing thing that you really hope it would be? <laughs> or your marriage, or your, the way your family operates, your children, your, your ministry, your, your involvements, your, your finances. What, what, if, what if you could just see, if, if you can see a world that's different in any of those areas or, or something else. Describe what you believe your life ought to be. What's your preferred future? And then ask this question, what tensions are you experiencing in life right now between what could be and what should be and what is? And describe your dilemma. Best to write this stuff out, like, like sit down with a pen and paper and just really kind of write this stuff out. It looks different. It feels different. You process it differently when it goes on paper. But what is bothering you about those tensions? And then ask the question, what's the solution? 
and what should be. So, in one or two sentences, describe what you believe your life ought to be. Second question, what tensions are you experiencing between what you, what you think your life ought to be like and what you're currently experiencing? Third question, have any of those burdens become a moral imperative that where it grows out of, yeah, I know this has got to change too. I know this must change. I have to move on this. Something must be done. And then the most important question of all, how do your burdens and tensions connect with what God is up to in the world right now? Because we don't want to just kind of look at our lives and go, oh, I wish this was better, and here's how I think it could be fixed, and well, I'll try doing this. It's got to connect to something bigger, and that something bigger is God's purposes in the world. How do the tensions of your life grow in you a hunger for God to intervene beyond what you could ever do yourself? I think as we're going to see in the, in the first few chapters of Nehemiah, Nehemiah had this great burden, but it was really, really a risk to step out and to move towards seeing something happen. I don't think that when Nehemiah started praying, he had a plan. I think the plan emerged as he was praying, as he was fasting, as he was seeking God deeply for those four months that it was during those times of prayer and fasting and seeking God that the plan emerged. He didn't go to God and say, here's my plan, please bless it. He went to God broken, and God gave him a plan. Vision is born out of a broken heart at what is, which fuels our hope for what can be, which drives us to prayer and moves us to action. We are entering a season of prayer and discernment and planning for the future of Gospel Chapel over the next number of months and, and, and maybe a year. Who, who knows? We, we don't rush these things. We're entering a season of prayer and discernment for the future of what God has for us as his people here, and we want to walk into that in obedience. We're seeking God's vision for who we are to be and what we are to do as his people in the coming years so that as we live and we serve in the community, Grand Forks and the Boundary, we, we do so as his workmanship, as his works of art to bless our community, reveal the glory of God through the clear communication of the gospel in all that we say or do. So what is our specific place in his kingdom plan for us right now, 2021, and into the future? These are the questions we're asking. What changes do we need to make in how we view ministry, how we view ourselves, how we view our city so that we can minister to the present emerging reality that we find ourselves living in? And how has God designed us right now as a community to serve his purposes and advance his kingdom to reveal the glory and the beauty of the gospel? This is the season we're entering as leadership in the church, and we invite you all to join with us in passionate prayer around those questions. For we, plural, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For 94 years, the walls of Jerusalem lay in ruins, but when God birthed the vision in Nehemiah, it took 52 days to get the job done. Just think of that. 94 years, 52 days. 
When God calls us to action, things can happen very quickly. When, when God speaks into our lives, the ruins of our lives, the dysfunction of our society, and the tensions we have been resigned to living with are not far from being renewed, restored, resolved, revived, and made into something beautiful for his kingdom. So what burdens your heart? What walls need to be rebuilt? What gates need to be restored? Where is God calling you to serve? Be prepared to grieve, to pray, to fast, to plan, and then pursue God's vision with a single-minded focus and determination. This will be hard. We read through Nehemiah, all sorts of opposition comes flying his way. But it will always be worth it in the end. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the example of Nehemiah, a, a man who saw a situation that people had been living with for, for decades and he said, this isn't good enough. This isn't the way we should live. This is not how God's city should be. And he was moved to tears. He was moved to, to mourning. He was moved to fasting. He was moved to prayer. And in that season of prayer, you birthed in him a plan. Lord, I ask that you would br uh, bring us to the place of mourning over what is. Of, of bringing us to the place where we will voluntarily enter season of fasting and prayer. Not as a program and not as a demand, but just out of the emotional reality that the world isn't the way that you designed it to be. And this should break our hearts and move us to prayer. Lord, that while we live in this beautiful place that, that sees very little... Um, in, in the way of, of intense challenges, we, we don't have uh, a lot of the challenges that maybe some other places in the world have, but we get comfortable with what is. So, Lord, show us. Show us what breaks your heart about our city, about our region. And then, Lord, help us to walk in obedience to how you're going to prepare us, the plans you're going to birth in us, so that your kingdom work can be done. Go with us in this week, and may we honestly look at the world around us and be in deep prayer for your hand to move and prepare us to be part of the answer to those prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.